You're listening to the Fearless Futures podcast, where we unpack and interrogate mainstream methods, as well as alternative approaches we have developed and deployed for equity and inclusion, working in daring companies across sectors around the world. Each week, we will explore a new angle you won't want to miss. So stick around. Hello, hello. I am so excited for today's episode. We're going to be talking, there is no I in us, the challenges of representation with Joy Torres. So for those of you who have been listening thus far on season two of the Fearless Futures podcast, I had some tech issues on a trip to London, and this is actually a reschedule. So although this will be appearing in order once the um, the tapings and recordings are available, this is actually episode eight, even though we've already recorded episode nine and potentially 10 at this point. Who's counting? But I know you don't care about those facts. I just want you to know that I was very, very, very committed to getting a chance to talk to you, Joy. And I just want to publicly thank you for your flexibility. How are you today? How are you feeling? I'm good. You know, I was like all set to go. And so then my nerves just built and I've probably overthought this whole thing, but I'm excited to be here. That is not what I wanted to happen (laughs) at all. I mean, I'm chilling. I'm ready to go. In any way, (laughs) shape or form. But again, thank you for your flexibility. For those who this might be your first time listening to the Fearless Futures podcast altogether, No worries, I am Sable Lomax. My pronouns are she and her. I am the Chief Relationships Officer at Fearless Futures. And I'm, I'm, as always, excited to have this conversation with Joy, whose pronouns are she and her, is an experienced equity and inclusion professional with a demonstrated commitment to social justice, working with value-centered organizations engaged in inclusive leadership. Before joining Unity's inclusion team as a senior inclusion program manager, Joy spent over 13 years working on diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy, leadership development, cultural programming, and inclusive learning and development within travel, tech, and higher education. So you have some years and you have some experience behind you, Joy. So with that, I'm going to jump, dive right in or jump in, shall I say, to the first question that we've asked of everyone. So just to let you know, I am not looking for any particular answer. I promise you that cross my heart, hope to live, not die. What would you say is a memorable mic drop equity learning moment for you? I'm sure you have a few. But if you had to choose one or two, which, which one or which one stand out the most? Probably my most formative aha moment I can remember happened my first year in college. I was uh, just kind of finding the words and the research and the community really uh, for talking about inequity and, and, and thinking about inequity that I had been observing and experiencing my whole life. So I was real fresh and new and my eyes were wide open. And the more that I learned, the more intimidated I felt that I could enact change, that I can make a difference. It just seemed so big. And there's this saying that people kept on saying, it's most associated with Jesse Jackson. And I had heard it before, but it was the first time it really landed for me, which was that 
there are two kinds of people. There are tree shakers and there are jelly makers. I like to say jam, but whatever. And as I got more involved in social change and issues of social change, I realized that activists and advocates can take on an infinite amount of roles. And I didn't have to be the loudest or the bravest in the group. I didn't have to take the mic. I could organize phone banks. I could gather supplies. I could facilitate workshops. I could share my story. And even though that didn't feel like it was important enough at the time, it was. And it was the first time I really felt really validated in that, that I could bring my skills, my strengths, my qualifications to the table and that they'd be welcomed. And and oftentimes they would be more than welcome. They would be so appreciated and lauded after. And I had no idea that that was that there were so many different roles to take on to to make change. You know, I'm really glad that you shared that because oftentimes when folks are having conversations with each other or thinking through like, what can I do? Like, I want to do something. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to do the wrong thing. I think we're often picturing like the very public individuals who are at the podium giving the speeches or, you know, whether it be a, a march or a protest, they're in the front line walking up to the podium or standing there. And it's like you highlighting that there's a role for everyone, I think is key here. Sometimes that role's not public at all and people will never know your name. That doesn't mean that the work you do is any less impactful. I mean, sometimes it's more impactful. Yeah. Because I always say the people who are feeding folks doing this work have a really important role because you literally need energy to be able to continue this. I also like to eat folks. So I just wanted to slide that in there for anyone, anyone listening. So your the equity moment, mic drop moment that you shared came from your years at college. Is that when you say you began to get really interested in this work? Like, how how did you come to this work? What was your journey like? Yeah, I would say that's probably when I I first put to words a feeling that I'd had, if that makes sense, right? So often people ask, you know, how do you get into this work? Because it's not a clear path. Yes, no one right? which, in which was right. To, to the chagrin of my family, they're like, Why, can't you be a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher? And I was like, I mean, I get it. When people ask me how I came to this work, I think there's like the, the acceptance speech answer, which is like, I came to this work solely on the backs and the sponsorship and mentorship and advocacy of so many other leaders that believed in me and my story. But I think for me, like for most of my life, really, I, I felt like I wanted to kind of, there were things in the world that I didn't like and I wanted them to change and I didn't feel the agency to do that. And the more that I interrogated the motivations behind this idea that I want to do something that changes the world. I wanted to be a teacher when I started college. I was like, I want to be a classroom teacher, an English you. teacher. Don't worry. Literally English teacher. Yeah, yeah, Don't yeah. worry. Got you covered. <laughs> I mean, you know, props to all the English teachers out there. I love that work. But the more that I unpacked the motivations behind it, and the more I really thought about my future, I didn't think about my classroom impact. I kept on thinking, I want to be able to like sponsor a student organization and mentor children and and believe in them, right? To, to believe in young people. Pairing that with my journey in college where I was really kind of 
finding an academic branch of a feeling that I had, a whole genre of things that I didn't know about, whether that's systemic oppression or discrimination. As a young person, the more that I learned about it, I thought that it would validate me, but instead it haunted me. It just haunted me. I would lay awake at night and and wish that I could just turn it off. And no, I don't, I don't necessarily lay like this at night to be clear. Um, but I just wanted to turn it off. You know, I would watch a movie that I loved and just feel like it was ruined. Or uh, I would have a conversation with a friend from high school and feel like it was different. And I just couldn't put it to bed. Like it didn't matter. I went, I graduated from college. I had jobs and I had, you know, quote, normal jobs that didn't have inclusion or diversity or equity in their title. And I still found myself working on these initiatives from the side of my desk. So it was a windy road, but I just kept on coming back to it. And no matter where I was, whatever role I had, I kept on feeling like I want to be a part of a solution for something that I was lacking systemically in the past. I just, so I, I can't, it's hard to say that I came to this work. I feel like uh, it found me and I just couldn't ignore it any longer. I'm thinking about just, I'm visualizing really this windy road. And I think that's almost accurate. I've ne- I haven't surveyed folks. So anyone who's listening, no, Sable does not have the data to support this assumption. But I, I'm not afraid to argue that most of us who come to this work have quite a windy road and, and just, you know, road less traveled, maybe, if you will. And I think a lot of that speaks to what you highlighted. It's not exactly you know, that you could major or minor or have a concentration in diversity, equity, and inclusion at college if you went to college anyway. So I think that alone speaks to, you know, folks come to this work from many different places and from many different backgrounds and experiences. But I want to, I want to, Zone right in here. So there's no I and us, all things, you know, the challenges of representation. So I was really, really excited when I was chatting with our CEO, Hannah Naima McClowski, about, you know, what would our topics be? Who should we have as guests? And then, you know, you had a list of topics, you had a list of guests, that potential guests, you know, crossing your fingers and hoping everyone said yes. And you're like playing the matching game, if you will. And Joy, both of us said like for this one, we're like, Joy, we we have to reach out to Joy. Let's hope Joy says yes. So thank you for saying yes. I know I've thanked you before, but I do want to thank you for, for taking the time to chat with us about this in particular. So we know, and I know you know, and those who are listening now, those who are listening later, you know, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion work often can rely really, really heavily on representation. And it often feels like it's a numbers game. So, you know, there has to be certain number of marginalized or minoritized people in the department, you know, in leadership, in Congress, Parliament, TV screens. So we can point to like, look, we have someone from that identity. You're like, look, we have someone for that ethnicity. We have two people this year. We have grown by one percent. You know, that that's just a reality that exists when we're talking about representation, how people take that approach. Before we talk, you know, we get into the nitty gritty of representation. I want to start off just positive. Like, let, let's just start in the positive and we'll, you know, we'll work our way through this windy road together. 
in being optimistic, what have you seen or what are your thoughts on some of the positives on focusing on representation for marginalized folks, whether it be Congress, Parliament, or truly just like an ad in a magazine? There's a lot of positives. You know, I'm really glad we're starting there because I don't think we get to dwell on it enough, especially in diversity, equity, and inclusion, where we kind of jump right into some of the pitfalls. But if we zoom out broadly, increasing representation of marginalized groups within leadership roles, media, everywhere and anywhere is essentially a recognition that the systems we have established have a disparate impact and we're willing to acknowledge and remedy that. That's great. You love to see it. (laughs) And what excites me even more than like just the recognition that we need representation and a shift toward it is the impact of that representation. So increasing representation in any team or any group is like widening our collective view. The more diverse, representative, and dynamic that representation is, the more we can all witness the full spectrum of people's experiences and the more we can avoid kind of that single story uh, mentality, right? Their challenges, their joys, their worries, the ways they navigate the world. Representation can better inform our policies, our decision-making, our storytelling, and more. And really on an individual level, it's even more poignant. And I think a lot has been written and said about the power of feeling seen, the representation, like that overwhelming, validating sense, right? I'm not alone. There's someone like me. And that's motivation enough for me to value representation. And yet I I also like to consider how powerful it is for an individual to recognize experiences that are distinctly different from their own. Yeah. To have a glimpse of something that you didn't previously know and now you've seen it represented right before you and to realize yes how similar we all are la 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 but also how different other li- others lives can be from our own is very powerful i as you were saying that i i was thinking of of course it's related to television or like disney movies or what have you but when there's different cartoons um, and characters and things, you know, from a different identity group. And then you literally are inundated on social media with the children staring at the screen because it's like maybe for the first time they've seen a character that looks like them, talks like them, walks like them, you know, has curly hair, you know, whatever it might be on the screen. And then they all want to be them for like Halloween or any any excuse where a child can play dress up. So I definitely, I definitely see the power that you're talking about, obviously in different contexts, not just like Disney and cartoons and such. But I think that's one of the most like innocent examples of like the power and representation that um, most folks can recognize. Now, talking about power and representation, where have you seen that play out in the workplace? So we're still in a land of positives, but like where have you witnessed representation be powerful, particularly in a workplace context? First, I just want to acknowledge, yeah, Disney, <laughs> I boohooed in Mulan in the theaters as a teenager, just boohooing. Mm-hmm. I was uh, Jasmine for Halloween, Princess Jasmine, because she was the first like tan skinned person I had ever seen a person of color on that screen as a Disney princess. And it mattered a lot to me in ways that I hadn't put words to, right? You're just like, I want to be her. I want to see her. I want to talk about her. Uh, so beautiful. Um problematic in its own ways, but 
Um, so to your question about in the workplace, I think, you know, we've all heard those kind of like monikers in whatever industry it is, like first woman of color CEO at a company or first black woman Supreme Court justice or first queer Afro-Latina to win an Oscar for acting that literally just happened, right? Yeah, it did. Sometimes I cringe when people share that representation means you can look at someone who's the first to achieve something and know that you can do it too. Not because that's not true. It is very true and very powerful as a motivator. But I cringe, though, because if you leave that unexamined, it allows someone to assume that lack of representation is really just about a mindset. Yeah. That some people know they can achieve something and that others don't know that. And we just must tell them. And that can solve the problem. Um, I hate that. Ugh. So to see someone be the first or the only and feel like we've systemically change something is just tokenism. It confuses representation as a static number instead of a dynamic outcome. So to interrogate what's really happening often is that when someone achieves one of those powerful firsts, it signals to other people that the systemic obstacles that kept others out in the past might be, might be movable, malleable, changeable. And sometimes that means that you're clearing a path or drawing a map, but usually it just simply indicates that systems are still in place, but the outcomes may be a little bit more negotiable. And so now's not the time to lay back and say, job well done, we've done it, we solved the problem. People know they can achieve anything now, but really it's a time to kind of dig in because we have momentum to, to, to look at some of those blockers, turn them over and, and actually dismantle them. I just, want, I just want to highlight, I wanted to start with positives, but it was Joy who was slowly bringing us into the other side. I just, just want to throw that out there for, for folks listening. But I really do appreciate you, you know, distinguishing the difference between someone from a minoritized, you know, ethnicity or marginalized community achieving some level, level of success or status does not mean that the oppression that they experienced along the way has miraculously dissipated and no longer exists. So I just really want to thank you for highlighting that because you often see, just like you said, it used as a reason to say, well, all of you can do it too. And if you haven't or don't, for whatever reason, it is a mind, it's an individual mindset issue instead of unpacking and digging in like, like you've mentioned. So in this land of representation, and we're still, you know, talking in a workplace context, what do you find to be the challenge when, you know, there's the individual who's there, who's present, let's just say they're in a leadership role for, for, for this question, where it feels like the stakes are too high, they're the only one, and the, and feeling the weight of having to be the quote unquote diverse voice on behalf of an entire group of, of people, you know, and they're the only, so there's risks to speak up in general, but then being expected to be able to represent an entire community group as if, you know, community groups aren't multifaceted and diverse within themselves. Like, how have you seen folks work through that when the stakes are high? Because they recognize their position, but they also recognize they're an individual and they can't actually speak on behalf of every single last person within the identity groups that they share, but they're often asked to. 
It's a big question. I know. Uh, I'm Sable. Sorry. <laughs> you know, and I, I think um, I'm always kind of, um, I want to kind of step back okay. just a tad because I, I, I think it's easy to kind of go straight to like, how do people do that? But for me, I like to think about it systemically. That's a lot of pressure to put on people and then to like unpack what's happening there. I, I don't I don't think all people rise to that occasion and nor should they have to, right? So I think there are, of course, examples of people that do that exceedingly well. They they know they're the only, they they feel the pressure and they kind of move with grace uh, while you know, companies are, are trying to figure it out and fixing it and increasing the representation. But more often I see what happens is that when you have an only, or even just like a few, there's a burden, not only for the only, but for everyone else that's of their community or of a, a, another marginalized community that's watching, supporting, invested in their success. I always think of that Tyra Banks meme where she's like, we were rooting for you. We were all rooting for you. And, you know, and sometimes people, you know, rise to that occasion, sometimes they can't. But really the the issue is not them and if they fail or succeed in being the only, it really is that those stakes are way too high. And so when stakes are that high, people feel this responsibility to represent their community or not. Sometimes people completely step back from that and say, I don't want to be known as X person. I just want to be known for the good work that I do, which is difficult to hear sometimes if you're one of those people that's watching and supporting them. But also it's completely understandable to want to be looked at as an individual when it has that much pressure attached to it. But really, systemically, for a company to, to have that dynamic play out and often in many pockets is that it denies these up and coming leaders, these really critical people that could be cornerstones to your success. It denies them opportunity to, to take risks, to admit when they're wrong, to be inconsistent, to grow and evolve. It denies them the ability to be fully realized leaders. And so when they fall short of expectations, it's so disappointing for a number of reasons, not only for their own journey, but for the journey of a company to to not give them that space um, to grow and evolve and make mistakes. It's very unfortunate when that happens. And I know we're talking about, you know, the positives and the solutions, but for me, that's always that's always the danger that I first think of of just that is just like an insurmountable amount of pressure. And it's exceptional when people can that can walk that high wire act, mm-hmm. but most of the time we can't. And we, we kowtow to that pressure and we maybe make decisions that we wouldn't make because we have that responsibility to represent all people and all things, or even just an idea of community on our backs while we're, we're walking that path. What would you say if you could have all senior leaders in the world, let's just say they log into a Zoom, this might not be in person, but to get them to understand the pressures and pitfalls and dangers of of being the only, to get them to realize, actually, have we we set them up to be successful if they're the only, And, and maybe even so, Joy, speaking to how you started off, your response, 
Maybe what would you ask to get them to unpack? Why is it that they're the only in the first place? That would be the piece of just when people are like, if someone were to ask me, like, how can I support the only? It goes back to the work. We cannot hire our way into equity and inclusion. We cannot. (laughs) And so many times when I'm like working with an organization or I'm talking to leaders, that's the that's the, the, the direct line, the bold line between we need to increase our representation to, okay, well, we'll just hire a bunch of more people. There's a lot to be done in hiring in terms of like representation and interview panels and sourcing channels and funnels and really pushing ourselves to redefine um, how we think of qualifications and excellence. Yes. If we can do that, plus so many other things, we can work our way around the the existence of the only. Really, that's really the issue. We can pretend to solve the problem by setting up the only for success, or we can make sure that they're not the only. Not only in numbers, but in so many other things that matter, like values and excellence definitions and how we promote and retain and pay people, right? There's so many other levers to pull rather than going back to this deficit model of how can we best support this one leader that we're upholding within the community and, you know, Simba-ing it like, hello, you can do it as opposed to really thinking through what is broken in this system. And there's something you've highlighted there, this idea of retention because you're right, so much focus is on recruitment. You know, we need to have a diverse candidate pool, no arguments there. You know, we need to have diverse interview panels. Okay, we need to have like inclusive and equitable recruitment processes and onboarding processes essentially from start to finish. Okay. But if once these folks, you've recruited these folks into, you know, they're now inside, they're a part of the organization and the company, if inclusion and equity does not exist, that's how you lose people. And that's how you end up sometimes with the only, if you haven't cherry picked them out of just, let's just say a candidate pool, because your goal was to hire someone from that particular group. Retention, I think, is often missed in these strategies. It's like, we have to get them in the door. We we have to increase our numbers. It's like, well, if I actually look at numbers over across the years, across a couple of functions within the organization, you do recruit them. Do you retain them? That's a different story. Exactly. It's, it's so many things. That it's really tempting to think of this type of work as linear, like, First, first, we will hire them. Yes. And then we'll figure out all the rest. (laughs) But it's not, it's like, there are literally people in your organization. I think if uh, a second runner up to like big um, aha moments that I've had in my career is one from Fearless Futures, which was this idea that, um, you know, a system is perfectly designed for its outcome. Like, I think about that all the time, like, representation is not a solution, right? It's an outcome of a process. And so if you have an issue of representation, yes, you can try to fix it with hiring, but you're not going to be successful because 
if you're repeatedly getting a biased outcome, which is you have very little representation, the systems that you that you've established have created that by design, and you have to redesign it. And that's end to end. That's hiring representation, the way that you promote, the way you evaluate, the way you pay, the way you promote. It's in your benefits package, in your accommodations processes. It's so many different things that can be very overwhelming to a leader. And it can feel like you're trying to boil the ocean. What's beautiful about that is that usually those processes are owned by many, many different teams, which makes it complicated to manage. But it means that we can tackle this all at the same time, that these all can be initiated and and reviewed and, and shifted immediately. We don't have to kind of pick piecemeal what we're going to do. And in fact, many companies are learning some really big expectation resetting that they have Mm -hmm. been going about this maybe a little bit too piecemeal, a little bit too heavy on the recruitment and hiring and a lot less on the other end. Mm -hmm. I love that you highlighted and using your language of piecemeal or even steps. It's like, first we have to solve all things gender. Um, pay equity. And then once we do that, then we can move move on over and support the LGBTQIA plus community. And then once we've done that, you know, and, and that approach does not work because folks don't exist in silos. But also what about folks who exist across multiple sites of oppression? If someone is also a woman, but, or, or trans, you know, a trans woman, how, how does that work if you don't recognize them as women within your organization? Like, I love this idea of not piecemealing and highlighting because I, I often see leaders get overwhelmed, like you said, trying to boil the ocean. I'm going to use that more regularly. And they're like, it's so much. We can't do it all at the same time. But if these processes and processes and, and practices and policies are held by different functions within the org, we actually could do this at the same time and we can turbo change um, the progress that's made. So leaders that are listening, Joy said, not Sable, Joy said we can turbo change the processes and, and progress, you know, for marginalized folks that exist within the organization. Joy, are you double clicking this? You double tapping? Are you you giving me a yes. aye aye? I'll say that. Yes. Figure it out. Yes, you can do it all. Yes. And you should try. Yeah, I love that. Whatever you're doing now is not working. So I'm just going to remind you there, leaders. Or sometimes it's not enough. Like, I, there, there's an interesting conversation that um, I think folks have across the board in this space. Like, wh- what are our markers or measurements of progress? And it's like, well, let me ask you, progress for whom? You know? Because folks from these marginalized communities, we've been waiting patiently for quite some time. Some of us, hundreds of years. Like, it's not enough. Like, we can we can still go on, but that's not why we're here today. I want, I want to stay focused. Stay focused, stable. Back to really zoning in on all things representation. I want to have a little chat about um, something that I'm going to call the perfect victim. And the reason why I say that, because... I often see when we're thinking about, you know, just the realities of folks who experience oppression joy, you know, this could be a survivor of sexual violence. This could be a refugee. This could be someone undocumented, incarcerated folks for potential. I mean, potentially. Sometimes what I've noticed is that as we're picking who to 
lift up or shine a light on, it's often those whose experiences or stories that we think are palatable for, you know, others. So it could be the white gaze. It could be the male gaze, the, the rich person's gaze. And how, how do we avoid that trap, particularly in a workplace context when we're, we're trying to prioritize inclusion, but we, we're looking at representation as a way to do that, if you will. You know, thinking about who actually gets represented and how we make those selections and and who doesn't. That's a tough question. And there's like the straightforward answer, but not necessarily a straightforward solution, right? (laughs) Because we're talking about people and everyone is so different. So personally, when I find myself kind of processing complex events and their impact, I have to remind myself to be rooted in the belief that all people deserve dignity and humanity, literally all people. And that's how I ground myself in the work that I do. And to that end, I have to be wary of narratives that seek to find a perfect victim to put on a pedestal for support. And so, so that individually we, we see that a lot. It's especially, especially when we're talking about victims of sexual assault, right? So this idea that we need to qualify victims of sexual sexual assault, that they're educated and not promiscuous and innocent people, somebody's loved one. They're just skirt, minding their own their business. Ankles, you know, it's like they- Right, undeserving of violence and, mm-hmm. and, and violation. And what we're really not saying is the implication that there are others that we would deem deserving or at least not surprising, right? Like we do that. I've thought about this a lot since January 2021, because on a national level in the U.S., there were the riots at the U.S. Capitol. And some of those early reactions were things like, things like this do not happen here. This looks like scenes from a different country altogether. And oh, that I cringed inside because it's just another positioning of that perfect victim mythology for a country setting. Like this is something that garners emotion that in another scenario, we can collectively distance ourselves from because that's expected here. So that's expected with this person, that's expected there, not here, not with this person, right? So just a differentiation. And then recently this came up in, in, in related work scenarios, but this came up on a kind of like a racial and economic overlay where living in the United States, I live in Texas. So there's a lot of rhetoric around migrant children crossing the border at Texas and Mexico's border, seeking asylum, juxtaposed with the rhetoric behind Ukrainian children crossing borders into other European countries. It's a tough thing to call out, honestly, even for me as a professional, because the differences are incredibly nuanced and contextual and complex. And I don't want to fall into a trap of kind of pitting vulnerable children against one another, but it was notable. The outpouring of support and indignation about injustices that occur to groups we consciously or subconsciously deem worthy of protection and peace and opportunity. So that is kind of like all that's floating in my head when, especially at work, what comes up time and time again, especially in this particular context, in this environment that we're in, there's a lot of employees asking of companies that they work for and communities asking of organizations that 
are notable and public companies, especially, what are you doing? What do you stand for? What are your values as an organization? And constantly, there's this fear of a slippery slope. Anytime something happens politically, current event-wise, natural disaster-wise, this argument gets carted out about, well, if we speak on this topic, well, we have to speak on all topics as a company. And really what's happening in that situation when those questions are being asked, they're being asked earnestly. And really what we're not hearing, the implicit question in there is, is there a connection between the humanity of the people that are experiencing that that are impacted by this particular situation and the person that's asking that question, there's usually an emotional distance that creates not even necessarily disgust or repulsion. Usually it's just helplessness or apathy. Like we can't even do anything. I don't know what we could do. I don't know what we could possibly do, but we will do, we'll have the same resources, time, attention, and commenting for sustainability and carbon emissions. Right. So for something that feels a little bit more emotionally or politically neutral, we might take a stance, do a press release, have a media blitz, um, all this stuff. But for something that feels a little bit more dangerous or more divisive, we'll say that it is political and we won't touch it, which is hilarious to me because net zero is incredibly political. Um, but we know what we're saying. It's coded language, right? When we mm-hmm. say things are, are, are political. So then I think connected to that privileged gaze in the workplace is that when leaders are doing that, they're often over-indexing on the importance and impact of people with privileged identities to the detriment of others. This recently came up at work. I've had leaders in the past and currently even that say, you know, they don't want to openly condemn anti-LGBTQ legislation because if they openly condemned it, they're they're alienating customer and employee bases by doing so. Mm. So then what they're not saying is that there are huge swaths of customers and employees that would joyously support that condemnation. But we're over-indexing on this like this group of privileged people that we deem as our ideal customer, employee, community stakeholder. And that's a hard part to kind of unpack and swallow that all that's left unsaid when we index on that that gaze, that privileged gaze. Representation is not about just the bodies in the room. Representation is about the, the recognition of varied lived experiences and values that are brought to the table. So when people from marginalized backgrounds are represented, it's really about making sure that they are not seen as niche, but are really seen as valued experiences. They're not a checkbox. They're not, you know, baby in the corner. They are literally a part of the conversation and are are treated equally in, and weighted as equally in that value. I love that you added that in the end, because oftentimes that's missing. I mean, you, you, you just gave so much um, and I'm just thinking through like different pieces that you said, but really want to really wanting to amplify what you said in the end, you know, if the goal is just to say you have someone in leadership from this background, whatever the background might be, you know, the identity group, if their thoughts and ideas and perspectives and additions aren't valued, 
then do you really have representation or did you just want to tick the box to say, no, but we have we have a disabled Jewish woman who's the leader. So look, disabledism, anti-Semitism, sexism, look, we, we, look what we did there. You know, it, is that all they're there for? Or, you know, when they make a suggestion or they say, I'm not sure we should do that, here's why, are they taken seriously? And there was something else that you said there in terms of um, when it comes to public messaging or even internal messaging within a, within a company, what folks decide to speak on and what leaders you know, decide not to speak on for whatever reason they may give, it's really interesting what it means to get folks to a point to realize when you don't speak on something, it can show up as complicity. And then what does that then mean? And what does that signal to those in that particular group for whatever it might be? And really reckoning with that. Like there's one thing to say, I'm not racist. I don't know who's taking that exam, by the way. There's another thing to say, I actively engage in anti-racist practices. That's two different things. So there, there was so, so much there. And then just, you brought the word politics into the space. I wanna talk about the term identity politics because I feel like it's become synonymous with representation. And like many complex terms. It's like they had their origins and those who knew them knew it and they used it. And then somehow it got mainstream. You know, someone said something on Twitter. Now there's a TikTok unpacking. Now there's an IGTV. There's a Facebook Live. There's blogs. And then the, the original meaning of the term gets lost. And I feel like that's what's happened to identity politics. Just so you all know, it was coined by the Kambahi River Collective in their 1977 manifesto. This is not a multiple choice test. I don't expect anyone to have known that beforehand, but it's not a new term. And the way in which it's been defined now, again, synonymous with representation, just so you all know, that's not what it was before. I promise I'm going somewhere with this, but I'm gonna have to read something because I wanna make sure I'm quoting it. So in general, Let's go back a couple of years, 19 in the 1977 manifesto, the idea of identity politics, okay? It argued for a broader, wider, expansive coalitions to the fight for injustice. So this idea that common experiences to solve common problems. Barbara Smith is one of the co-founders of um, the Kambahi River Collective. And this is what she said. I have often wished I could spread the word that a movement committed to fighting sexual, racial, economic, and heterosexist oppression, not to mention one which opposes imperialism, anti-Semitism, the oppressions visited upon the physically disabled, the old and the young, at the same time that it challenges militarism and imminent nuclear destruction is the very opposite of narrow. So this idea that identity politics is supposed to be broad, is supposed to be expansive, where representation has taken us into a space of narrow. If we worked with the original definition of identity politics, Joy, and I think it speaks to something that you said before, we could actually do some turbo change work if we all like take what we're responsible for internally. If we go back to this broader definition, and this idea that you don't have to have experienced that oppression to be able to fight it. 
how could that change the ways in which workplaces view their inclusion and equity work? Okay, first, that's a beautiful, beautiful question phrasing. Second, easier said than done, Barbara Smith. Thanks. Um, Very true. Um, I think there are a lot of well-worn quotes that have a similar idea that, you know, all of our liberation is bound together. I, 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 this is like a promo for Fearless Futures, but I just, I love the nonagon and, and, and thinking through the nonagon and, and understanding that different manifestations of oppression are interconnected, but are often pitted one against one another. I have to tell them what a nonagon is. They're, they're not oh, going to yes. Really quick, for the nonagon, it is a nine-sided shape, okay? And what it does, what we do in our particular training, we highlight nine different systems of oppression and and we work through them, having a conversation. What are the roots? Where does it show up um, in the world? Where did it come from? How does it show up in our organizations? So that's the nonagon that Joy is talking about for those of you who have not been to one of our trainings or stopped at octagon when learning shape size of um, shape numbers and sizes. That's all. Go ahead, Joy. Just wanted to throw that in there for folks who are like nonagon. <laughs> There's so many examples of of advocates that unintentionally narrow their scope, right? We we just talked mm-hmm. about this. Like it's not it's not a linear path, whether you're a DEI advocate and activist or you're a leader of an organization. And I, whenever I think about uh, quotes like this, I always think about the cringy moment when um, I was years ago, Patricia Arquette said like, women have been fighting for everyone's rights for so long and now it's our turn. Um, there's really often, uh, <laughs> it was, she did, uh, you know, I, it was a while back. I don't think she got nearly the amount of blowback that she would have gotten if she said that today, but there, I mean, there are people that are, <laughs> there, there are, there are so many moments like that, that still happen just this year. Um, and so there's so much temptation, I think, to think of oppression as like, like a video game with varying levels of isms to fight. And like this level is about racism and this level is about sexism and we'll defeat them one by one and we'll move on to the next one. And it's not that easy. And in fact, it's interconnected. So I, another word like identity politics that has been really kind of uh, appropriated, misappropriated, um, I think is is um, intersectionality, right? So it's a similar idea that- I'm just saying, I knew you were going to say that, but continue, continue. <laughs> right. Oftentimes people think of intersectionality as like, oh, look, look at me and my person and all the things that make me me and really kind of ignoring like a huge cornerstone of that theory from Kimberly Crenshaw, which is about that compounding effect of multiple marginalized identities on a lived experience. And so I, when I think about Barbara Smith's quote in theory, it's so important to ground the work that we're doing and to ensure coalitionally across multiple systems of oppression and lived experiences that we're doing work and we're not doing harm and that our liberation is bound together. But I think it would be naive of us not to recognize and acknowledge that that is so hard to accomplish on a day-to-day basis because we want to 
we want to sometimes feel tempted to go back to that. What is that? Uh, we're going to get into it in a second, I think, but elite capture and this idea of like, well, let's go mm-hmm. toward the things that seem the most easy to accomplish, the ones that have the most energy to make change, the things that everyone is excited about changing or the most people agree is an issue of concern. And so those are really important things that Barbara Smith um, talks about sex- sexism and racism and heterosexist oppression and anti-Semitism, but oftentimes people within those communities and those lived experiences have very different ideas for how that change should happen. And sometimes, unfortunately, after history, uh, many, many centuries of being pitted against one another and like this oppression Olympics that we have a lot of work to do to, to ensure that how we go about our liberation is just as important as, as, being liberated and in fighting it to dismantle oppression. The spirit of it is so important and the logistics of it, I, I don't have a, a roadmap for that. I don't think many people have a roadmap for the logistics of it, you know, if if we're being transparent. But I do think there's something there I want to tease out that you said of of how communities have been pitted against each other. And what would it look like for communities to to stand in solidarity with each other and recognize that all of these isms are interconnected? And yes, they will show up and manifest in different ways, in different geographical contexts and, and so forth. But, you know, what does that mean? If our solutions only focus on one group, I'm thinking of a game now with levels because of you, Joy, but I I love that analogy. You know, if we only focus on racism in level one, you miss out all disabled folks from certain communities. If you only focus on, you know, disabledism in level three, you've missed out the fact that you could be a trans person, a gender nonconforming person and disabled. If you only focus on anti-Semitism at level five, you get my point here. What I will say is this, for those who are like, but Sable, um, Joy, you just proved our point. It's too hard to do, so we're not going to do anything. A, that's not what we said. But B, the idea that once you honor the complexity of these systems, and you recognize they have been beautifully designed to work and function and produce the outcomes that they do, positive outcomes for those not targeted by that oppression, negative outcomes for those who were negatively targeted by that oppression. Once you, you know, you come to grips with that, then you, I think that should encourage us to slow down to, uh, to make sure we understand before we speed up into a space of solutionizing because complex problems require complex solutions. So the quick wins that people are often looking for, folks, I hate to disappoint you, but it's it's not gonna show up in anything inclusion and equity related. Or if it does, you need to ask yourself, am I causing more harm by trying to you know push out this quick win? You know, I really wanted to get into elite capture, but I'm looking at the time and Joy, I really want to ask you this last question because I'm determined to actually follow the rules and be done on time and also honor your time, Joy. So there's that. So maybe it sounds like we're going to have to have a part two 
or see each other in person one day and just go to dinner and talk about Disney um, and then talk about inclusion and equity. And there's loads to be said there, honestly. But we've asked this question of everyone. It's an easy question to some. For some folks, it has not been easy. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say which one it is. I'm just gonna throw the question out there, Joy. And if you need a second to think about it, totally fine. If you could have dinner, breakfast, lunch, just a meal, just a meal, with anyone in the inclusion and equity space, past or present, who would it be, Joy? It, it feels like um <laughs> It feels like a waste to say her because um, she's alive. So I don't want to like um, <laughs> give up hope that it could happen. <laughs> but, you know, I'm going to pull a Meg the Stallion and like speak it into existence. Like I would love to, to, to meet with Kimberly Crenshaw because not because her work is necessarily seminal to my work, but I, I think her work is so misunderstood and yet ridiculously ubiquitously quoted and uh, misapplied. And I, I, there's a lot of her work that is just like never touched at all as well. And so I would just, I would love to meet with her and one talk shop, but then also just like, what, what, what is her work now? And what does she think of living through her work being used in this fashion and, and, and how does she feel about it? And then how does she try to, negate it and mitigate the the harm done. I also have a lot of questions for her about a lot of things like, what do you think about the fight against CRT, which is not necessarily your work, but also is lumped in with your work. Like, there's lots of things about her, her body of research that I would love to unpack with her. But it feels like a waste, right? Like, what if I really do get to, you know, have a, have Joy, a you, you answered, then you have to pick somebody from the past. <laughs> If you if you don't want to waste your selection on someone who's currently <laughs> alive and breathing, yet you, you have to pick someone who's no longer with us. I know. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna stand with with Kimberly Crenshaw and speak it into existence that one day I can have dinner with her. I have maybe 300 followers on Twitter, but I can try and tweet her and see. <laughs> I, I, I met know. someone that is her cousin, but they're see? not close. <laughs> Oh, I tried. Not helpful. I tried. Leah. You know how excited I got. I was like, see? And then you you stole my thunder just that fast. Honestly, Joy, look how quickly the time has gone by. Thank you again for rescheduling, for your flexibility. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your energy. I appreciate it. Learning more about you know how you come to this work your journey within the work, your thoughts you gave so many nuggets. I can see like so many um, quote tweets and, and quote images that could go up on Instagram and the like um, based on what you shared. But again, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Sable. Uh, it was such a delight to see you and, and speak with you and talk with you.